Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to the Culture Force Podcast, where we talk to leaders, influencers, and individuals about creating successful organizations and cultures that help change the world. We ask them how they did it, why they did it, and what you can most learn from them about achieving your own personal goals. I am one of your hosts, Chris Mefford. I'm currently the Chief Marketing Officer at San Diego Christian College, a former VP for Hall of Fame talk radio host, Dave Ramsey, where we won best place to work for eight straight years. I also own a digital marketing firm and am the author of the book, Hiring and Firing and Creating an Amazing Team Culture for Leaders in a Hurry. But all that pales in comparison to my co-host, Senior Chief Petty Officer of the Navy SEALs, Kyle Bucket. Kyle has been deployed to over 20 countries and a few more he probably can't even admit to. He's been involved in over 300 direct action missions. He's been a part of the unilateral training for every SEAL team on the West Coast and led the advanced training for both junior and seasoned Navy SEALs. He's been alone on the battlefield and felt the loneliness of leadership. And if that wasn't enough, Kyle has been named one of Starbucks Coffee's upstanders for his work with his nonprofit One More Wave to decrease the daily veteran suicide rate. He's conducted everything from single man operations to leading an 800 man clearance operation through southern Afghanistan. Kyle's developed Navy Special Warfare First Ground Force Commander course of instruction and was ranked number one of nine highly competitive platoon chiefs at SEAL Team 3. All of that is pretty impressive, uh, Kyle. I mean, people would be very, very impressed with who you are. But you know what? Combined, we think uh, two of us can offer you a unique perspective about life in the workplace, from the boredom to the ba- boardroom to the battlefield. Uh, many people talk about wanting to be leaders or managers and having a great company to work for and with. Uh, but when we talk about the future aspirations, when they're asked about why they want to do it, we found that the answers are always pretty disappointing mostly because we think they asked the wrong questions. So Kyle and I are here to get to the bottom of this and help our listeners understand how to be a great leader and how to create organizations that attract the very best people. And today we have an amazing guest. Kyle, tell them about amazing, who we're going to talk to. Amazing. So I am thrilled 
to introduce a good dear friend of mine, Mr. Joe Musselman. Joe is the visionary, the creator, the founder, the CEO of an incredible organization called the Honor Foundation, which we're going to talk to in a bit, and as well as the founder of Fathom Ventures, which we will also talk to in a bit. Joe has been an incredible friend of mine, has a passion for Navy SEALs, for Green Berets, Marine Special Raiders that are transitioning from service, from active duty into the civilian workforce. For those that are transitioning from, you know, maybe an A or a B round of of, uh, stage of financing. But Joe, I'm so glad to have you here uh, and learn from you as it pertains to culture, as it pertains to your wisdom. So without further ado, please welcome Joe Musselman. Joe, I want you to start, really. Let's get right into it. I want you to start with you talking about the Trek concept at the Honor Foundation. For those of you who don't know, the Honor Foundation is an incredible transition program for special forces guys and gals that are transitioning from the military after years of service. They're getting ready to go back into corporate America. And Joe created the Honor Foundation to help them do that. And you know why I bring this up and why I want to start with the Trek is because the Trek, which Joe's going to talk about, is a point where they take us warriors to numerous companies around us, big cities of America. And what's so interesting about the Trek, which is so interesting, especially for me personally, is this had a massive, massive reinforcement for my love of culture, a massive reinforcement, Uh, a culture that I started really thinking about back in 2011, this culture paradigm. So, Joe, I really want you to just kind of get into that trek. What what made you think about this idea and what it, what did you really start honing in on once you started doing them? Yeah, great way to start, uh, by the way. I'm glad that this is where we're beginning. Uh, so I can't talk about the treks without talking a bit about the founding story of an organization that Kyle talked about that I started uh, and founded in 2012 and 2013 called the Honor Foundation. Uh, you can find it at honor.org. Um, a, a very 80,000 foot view as to how this organization uh, began. Uh, I was the 16th man in my family to join the United States military. Uh, deep tradition of uh, military uh, men and spouses in my family. Uh, I grew up seeing every uniform of every branch and every closet of every home. And it wasn't just the men who were uh, in service to our country. The women were, in my family, were hardcore servants, great patriots, not just being spouses to military men, but at the same time, they were nurses, they were teachers, they were social workers. Uh, and I grew up uh, in, a very, uh, in a very loving environment of service. Uh, and it was only, it was never a matter of if, it was when I was going to join. And when I finally did, uh, I experienced a, a, a civilian deployment, uh, in meaning I, I did some work uh, with the DOD, the Department of the Army in college, which led me to a very forward operating base in Afghanistan, uh, where I met my first Navy SEAL. And for me, that was it. I had already put in uh, an OCS package to go into the Marine Corps. I knew my grandfather, my poppy, was going to roll in his grave when he would watch me go down the hallway from the Marine recruiter to the Navy <laughs> recruiter. Um, I could hear him cursing at me in Italian. Uh, and I basically said, look, I, I want to be a SEAL. And the look on the guy's face was, you know, pretty typical for how many people probably go into the office and say, hey, look, I want to be a SEAL. Uh, at that point in time, I, I'm not 
I mean, actually, Kyle, we're, we're similar. We're, we're not built to run fast or swim far. Um, so he looked at me and said, hey, here are the minimums and you have to score this, that, and the other. Fine, whatever. Sure. So I basically spent two years learning how to run okay and learning how to not just drown but somewhat swim. Um, did okay. I was designed to sink and I still sink. <laughs> the yeah. – uh, thrashing I, about i put a board yeah. underneath me by the way Joe. that's right so <laughs> smart so smart um and what happened was uh like most people who are ignorant to what it takes to become a seal i said okay i'm gonna enter uh, an olympic iron man every month for the next 15 months uh and if i didn't find an accredited race i would just do one on my own uh, it always baffled me all these race fees. I was like, look, there's a body of water, there's pavement, uh, and there's a bike, like go hit it. Uh, and so I did, I did 15, uh, Olympic level tries over 15 months. And, uh, I did a 50 mile run for my mother who had cancer at the time, uh, to try to figure out, you know, is my mind ready? All you keep hearing is look, it's not so much the body it'll carry you through, but the mind is what gets you across the finish line. Uh, and so that was the beginning of, of me understanding for the first time I was 23 years old, you know, so it's the first time I'm digging deep into a professional community where I kept hearing the same things like, oh, it's all about the teams. Uh, it's all about the leadership and it's all about the culture of the community. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, OK, it didn't hit me then, but I kept hearing the same thing over and over again. And unfortunately, about two and a half years into my pipeline, uh, I, I hurt my back uh, in a severe way. Um, you know, things slipped uh, out of place, baskets, bur all the liquid flowing around. It was it was a bad scene. Uh, and unfortunately, just like that, my my intention to become a SEAL, as pure as it was, was over. Uh, I received a medical retirement. It took me eight to ten months of rehabilitation to get me back on my feet, quite literally. And in that transition time is when uh, I came across something interesting. Uh, I got to know a master chief very well, and he had spent 26 years inside the community. Uh, for those folks that are listening that don't know what a master chief is inside of the Navy, it's the senior most enlisted person uh, from a ranking perspective. And this person was extraordinary. He had spent about 12 years, 12 to 15 years uh, at something called Development Group, which is a, uh, a SEAL team that doesn't exist but does. And, uh, you know, he also had a master's degree. Uh, he spoke multiple languages, French and Farsi. Uh, he was a six-time Ironman. He parachuted into the true, Kona World Championships. Oh, total slacker, <laughs> yeah. a horrible human, unpatriotic, all of the above. Uh, and, you know, he was one of those people that you knew of before you got there. So... When you arrive at training, it's all very much like you're on a movie set. You, you've read some books, you've heard some things, and you start like shuffling around this place that's much smaller in person than you had imagined, but so big in personality. And you were just so scared. I was so fearful. Like, you know, anyone who says they show up and they were just fearless, like, I will call you a liar. Like, you don't know what's coming. I will. Too. You don't know. Yeah, man. Like, you just don't know what's going to happen. And, and right there, you realize pretty quickly, subconsciously, like, your boat crew is your team and you rely heavily on your team. You hope to God you have a great officer in charge in OIC. So you hope you have great leadership. And every class has a very different culture feel to it. So again, it's all about the teams. It's all about the leadership and it's all about the culture. And that continues on to, um, you know, the teams. 
Now, flash forward to that story or, or back to the Master Chief story and, and flash forward a couple of weeks of us getting to know each other. And I went to his retirement ceremony, moving experience, moving. He's up there in his Navy whites, the sun's beating down on the command. Uh, it's packed, it's filled with friends and family and loved ones. Uh, and he told the most remarkable stories. Uh, this is a true hero. This is what, uh, this. Is, if you wanna know what movies are made about or should be made about, uh, it, it's this type of individual. It's what he stood for, it's what he stands for, it's what he believes in. Uh, and he was so diverse in his thinking up there about technology and and women inside the community and the need for uh, you know diverse mindsets. It was just, it blew me away. And of course, everyone is kind of there in tears and it's an emotional moment. His family gets called up. He gets, you know, there's a ceremonial whistle that's blown to call him ashore for the last time. And, uh, and now what's interesting is what happens the next day. So the next day he comes into my office, closes the door where I was working. It wasn't my office. Um, but he closed the door behind him and he, which was strange. And he looked at me and he said, Joe, 26 years in the SEAL teams, what am I going to do now? And he was crying. And when you see that stark reality change from going from fearless to fear-filled in a 24-hour period, the fact that it brings a patriot to tears like that, uh, and then here I am broke, wanting to be this person in 20 plus years. Uh, I didn't really have anything else other than do than to say, you know, Master Chief, how can I help? And so that was the, when people talk about the origin story, the birth story, it started right there. Um, a quote that I had on my desk for years was Mother Teresa who said, you don't have to help a thousand people, you have to help the person in front of you. And that, that moment really encapsulates that quote. Um, so I helped him and over 90 days later, he gets a job. I became addicted to that feeling selfishly, uh, a lot like mother Teresa outlined in her notes. There's a whole memoir for her and a chapter that talks about herself, herself, her selfishness. I wish more people in the world were as selfish as she was. Uh, she, she felt so selfish and, and good in doing the work of working with the poorest of the poor that she felt like, was she really doing God's calling? Was it supposed to feel this good? Um, so anyways, I felt so good helping him and I felt useful again. I felt relevant. I felt, um, like I could still contribute to a community that I want to be a part of. And like every entrepreneur, um, it's, it also provided just enough of a chip on my shoulder in the right direction. Um, I felt super vulnerable that I didn't make it, that I didn't get to be a part of this warrior culture the, and, and go do what my family had done for generations. I felt uh, insecure, you know, with myself. I was like, I, I had to prove myself still to the community that I had value to offer, that I had something that I could still contribute to them and their families, uh, and I wasn't going to give up. So that that kind of marks the beginning of this mindset of I have to go and talk to people. Uh, I am by nature. I was that five-year-old awkward kid that would sneak out from under the table when my parents would actually take me out in public, and I would introduce myself to everyone at the restaurant. Right. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm five. Like, nice to meet you. Um, and so I, I naturally am gravitating. I want to go talk to people. I think people are so interesting. The older you are, the more interesting you are to me, the more I have to learn from you. Uh, and so what I saw in that master chief is he was 46 years old um, and he was in pain. Uh, and, I, and I thought to myself, like any other person or in, interested person, not even entrepreneur, you had to ask yourself, how many more are like you? And that led me to do some very significant interviews. I, I interviewed 250 of his teammates who had transitioned out of the community 
in, across seven states in six months. I blew through my savings. My girlfriend at the time thought I was insane, whatever, gotcha. I'm now married to her. Um, so th- basically moving on from those interviews, I learned a ton. Imagine sitting in, in front of 250 warfighters who were all within a two to three year window of exiting their service. And the stories that I heard, the vulnerability that I felt come across the table from me, watching the son and daughter sit on the knee of the mother and and wonder what's happening and why is dad crying again? Over and over and over again, I can't even tell this story without emotions and goosebumps from head to toe. Because when I bring myself back to those kitchen table moments, those living room moments, um, it's painful. And it's, it's, I can't imagine a, a, an entire community since 1964 that has left this, the, that, have, that have left the teams, the leadership and the culture of this community and gone off um, and, and, and kind of parachuted into society with no idea what's next, right? And that's the question I kept hearing over and over again. And I think anyone who's listening, I know you're guilty of this because we all are. You've all asked yourself at some point in your life that question, what's next? No question that, that every single person who's listening to this podcast is going back to a moment in their life, either positive or negative, where they ask themselves, what's next? And when this community does that, and they've been, I, I use a tree analogy a lot when describing this. Imagine a community that is deep, 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 deeply rooted underground, and it's dark, but the system of roots is strong. And then they break the surface for the first time, and they're all by themselves, or at least that's how they feel. And the main takeaway from those 250 interviews that I did with the community was, um, which is a real motivator for the Honor Foundation, they could not think back to their transition moments in life, leaving the special operations community, and they could not come up with a single positive memory. Because then I got into the neuroscience behind a lot of this and the psychology and, and you know, I'm even noticing it now that, you know, uh, why, you know, you don't remember the horrible moments as well as you remember the great moments. Um, there's a different chemical reaction in the body. Like there's a, it's a reason why, parent, you know, I got into this huge, uh, wonderful argument about the, and debate and conversation around, uh, you know, why when children cry. So my, my new son is teething. Uh, and for a week straight, didn't sleep, right? And for some reason, uh, we're going to totally forget that week when we, a year from now, and we're only going to remember how beautiful and kind and how he slept and, and he was a perfect baby. We won't remember that one week. Uh, we'll kind of remember, but it won't be the same thing. And so when they would recall that moment in their life when they were in transition, it was with pain and it was with sorrow and it was with this nostalgia that had this residue of depression around it. Uh, and I mean, what a horrible way to leave a remarkable career. What a horrible way. Uh, so I, it needed to be fixed. Now moving on to the private sector. I interviewed after the first six months, I then interviewed 151 Fortune 500 company CEOs, executives, AVPs, EVPs. Hey, Joe, can I interrupt uh, yeah. just real quick before you yeah, transition? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah. you had 250 interviews and they had a hard time transitioning. Uh, I'm, I'm not a military guy. It's just kind of the uniqueness of what Kyle and I bring in this podcast. So my question is, as I look at, at, uh, at the, the, the top of the top, 
of our military and what they have to offer. Mm -hmm. It's a little surprising to me that they're unable or they're lonely or they're unsure of how to how to move forward, considering I look at them and go, wow, these guys are the best of the best. What mm -hmm. was it uh, that you found they struggled with the most? Like, why did they struggle? Yeah. Um, so why doesn't anyone ever ask what happens to Olympians after the Olympics? Mm. Why doesn't anyone ever ask what happens to a Navy SEAL after they become a Navy SEAL? It's because all of society thinks how you do. And they think they're, oh, they're just fine. And the community on the other side says, we'll be just fine because I know how to survive. Uh, and, and they don't ask for help and they don't ask for support. And, and I think the, the, the one thing that the Honor Foundation found was it's not about finding a job. Like that's not what transition, that should not be the main focus. Or I should say that that shouldn't be the first focus. The first focus should be who the hell am I? And so when I think about the biggest issue or the biggest problem is the servant mindset that this community has because they've been so dedicated to their teams um, for so long is they need to make a very palpable change, like tangible shift in their brain that now this needs to be about me and my family. And getting them to the point where they go from fearless to fear-filled, and then we have to bring them back to a mindset of fearless again. And it all starts with who they are on the inside, which is what we'll get into. And it's the, it's the number one thing that everyone walking around uh, does not take the time to do. That's interesting. I, uh, this is probably a good time for me to ask this question because I came across the quote you had, and it feels like it's it's pretty relevant to what you just said, mm -hmm. uh, which was, I was achieving my dreams, mm -hmm. and then I wasn't until I was again. That's what does right. that mean? Yeah, so I, I, I mean, think of the two and a half years that I spent training for the two and a half years that I was in training. Um, you train with something in mind for so long. I was achieving my dreams. I was going after something, feeling so privileged, first off, to be able to do that, right? Like I, I'm training to go into the United States Navy, the world's greatest and most powerful force on the water and on the land and in the air. So I, I felt privileged, first off, just doing that. Plus, I was able-bodied and I was able-minded. I was I, right there. I, I had all my faculties. I, I could do this. I could train for it. I was achieving my dreams. I show up at Bud's. I, I'm, uh, I'm there. I made it. I'm with the team. I'm running around. I'm, I, You're I, just I don't full of gratitude right at that full moment. Full of gratitude, yeah. man. Yeah. 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 And, and like it's a feeling I'll never forget. And I don't mean to sound flippant when I say this, but like the first week, why is everyone quitting? Like we just got here. Like this is amazing. Like look where we're at. Look who we get to do this with. Um, privileged, gratitude, attitude, the whole thing. And then I wasn't. I was in a bad place. I was in a dark place. I, I was the guy on the inside back in the day when I would hear about depression. I'd be like, ah, oh, it's a mindset. Like they just need to they need to fix that. Uh, it's an attitude shift. And not that that's right or wrong, but it's it's wrong. Um, in a lot of cases, it's a very real thing. And when I felt it for the first time, uh, now I know it's very real. You, your body feels heavier than what you can possibly lift to get out of bed in the morning. 
so that that is what I mean by I was achieving my dreams until I wasn't until I was again because you have a purpose until you don't and when you don't it's dark and then you find your purpose again and it's a big deal uh, and again I feel again privileged um, and once I found the you know the next step for me it's like I want to share this with them no one deserves it more than they do they don't look at it that way. But man, twice I struck gold. I loved what I did the first time. I remember what those feelings felt like. Then I, I went to a dark place and then I arrived again at purpose. And what a blessing that was. I never worked a day. It was a pleasure, a joy. I could have stayed CEO of that foundation till I was dead in the ground and been totally happy. Um, the So that's to answer that question. And and so real quick, so Chris, if you, do you, I know what Joe's saying, but I want to make sure you understand too. Do you really pull out of him what that one culture aspect was of the SEAL teams of the community that really kind of um, prevents or causes that hesitation in a lot of guys as they're getting ready to transition? Are you, are you getting that? Yeah. I mean, I get it in a sense that I think that's a common human condition uh, if I'm really good at something and then I step away from it and I, then I'm scared to what's next. And I think, Joe, your answer you just gave with regards to I was achieving my dreams and I wasn't and then I was again. It's that that gap between I wasn't until I was again that I think mm -hmm. that really creates fear in all of us. It, you yeah. know, I don't hate my job. I hate where I work or rather I hate my job and I hate where I work, but I don't know what's next. I'm afraid to take the next step and to step out. Um, yeah. I might, you know, the question I might ask and Kyle, that's a good question. And thanks for clarifying it. Might ask is how do you find that? Um, how do you how do you <laughs> instill the inspiration yep. in these guys to tell them it's going to be okay? Here's how you go about it. Here are the next yep. steps. Because I think that's relevant to everybody, but certainly relevant Just to the, the people that protect us 24/7 um, yep. all around the world. So two different two differential two variables that I think are different with this community than. Um, than most other career transitions, most other. I'm not disqualifying or making a blanket statement. I'm sure there's cases out there that are like this, but here's the difference. Um, most majority, meaning like 90 plus percent, leave the community and the job they love, not because they want to, because they have to. Mm, that's a, that's, good. that's a huge. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. They're leaving something they love, not because they, but they have to whether it's injury, family reasons, um, or they look, they're getting kicked out. They've been in for 32 years. Some people have been in that. I had people, I had men in my, in the classroom, uh, that had been in the Navy longer than I had been alive when I started this foundation. How am I going to, now this goes to your next question. How am I supposed to inspire these people? They've already done amazing things. And I learned very quickly, you don't, you don't need to inspire the already inspired. Uh, you have to give them a compass, and what mm. they were looking, what, what they were looking for, and this goes into your next thing of how do you find it? Um, when you think about a compass, if I gave someone a compass, okay, um, I now have the right tool, but I still need a destination, and so the destination is the process that I've built and researched in order to to found fathom. I spent a year being very quiet and going back to my roots of what brings me joy and clarity, which are interviews. 
And from 2019, February 12th, 2019 was my last day at the Honor Foundation. February 12th of 2020, I closed on about $10 million uh, over 30, over 90 days of fundraising to launch Fathom Ventures, one year to the day and of me leaving the foundation because I kept to the same rigorous standard. Six months, I'm going to interview these folks. Six months, I'm going to interview these folks. This time, it was I'm going to interview 50 venture-backed founders between the A and B round of funding. Then I'm going to interview 50 VCs who fund between the A and B round of funding. And I just asked them about each other. I was given hints as to what the problem was all throughout my career of working with donors from Silicon Valley and investors from Silicon Valley uh, and founders from Silicon Valley about what needed to be created from a venture fund perspective. But I wasn't sure. So I needed to give myself more of that validation. That one master chief gave me some insight. And then I asked my question, well, who else feels like you? And then I had to go out and get my validation, my confidence, right? And the, and the early stories of, of, the, of the Honor Foundation were only possible because I went and did the footwork. And design thinking, the first phase of design thinking, back to your certificates uh, comment at Stanford, uh, the first rule of design thinking is empathize with the community you mean to serve. It's the number one rule. And that's exactly what I did at THF. I went and empathized with the communities that I meant to serve, which were the employers that had no idea how the hell to access and hire these guys. And then the, the SEALs themselves on, you know, what do they need? I need to empathize with your situation. Um, and so now it, it's a good transition into the tracks. Um, it, it, first, let's perfect. stop. You, any, any ideas, any, any questions or comments on yeah, that stuff? Just a uh, couple of, uh, one observation, um, maybe a couple observations here and I don't know if they'll turn into questions, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is like, sometimes I'll do business coaching and the advice I give to some business owners is like, Hey, call up 50 guys who are doing this well in the next city over and ask them what their biggest lessons were they learned, avoid all the, the issues that you're having and, and learn from them. I did, uh, uh, I had a client once who made guards uh, for for figure skates and ice skates and uh, and, and speed skates. And mm -hmm. I went into his office once and he had his whole uh, desk was full of shampoo bottles and soap bottles and and all kinds of bottles you can imagine. I'm like, what's going on here? And he said, well, Proctor's and Gamble spends millions of dollars figuring out what the hot new colors are for the season. So I just go get the hot new colors from the grocery store and then I tell my guys to match the colors. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just that kind of thinking and mm -hmm. seeking out a different way to do it. And what I think that, I hear you saying, Joe, is, man, I, I sit down and I communicate with people and they fill me with all the wisdom I need to find my purpose, to find my place to, so that I can tackle it in a very strategic way versus out here wandering in the, in the desert trying to hope I'm inspired to find something that I need to do or to not learn from it. So I'm hearing you say communicating, finding people who do or have done or involved with what you wanna do and talking them over and over again can give you a solid foundation for your next steps potentially uh, in life. And then when I, when I hear you say, uh, empathize with the community you want or you're meant to serve, uh, is that, are you doing that because what that, that does is builds trust. And so people see that you're genuine and you have a deep desire to understand what they're doing or what's the rationale or understanding behind that. Mm -hmm. And I could be way off base for both those, but that's just- No, 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 no. No, I love that last one. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, except I just, I had no brilliance to actually understand that's what I was doing. So none, zero, literally. Uh, what I was doing was falling onto my, now, now I've since codified this behavior, 
and have talked to other people in order to reaffirm the codification that has come through this behavior. Because as I go back in my life, I realize that I've naturally done this same thing to find out everything I ever needed to find out about anything I ever wanted to do in my life. So like if I, I wanted to be in, and I go, I went back all the way up to high school. If I wanted to join a sport, I went and talked to people who did it. Tell me about it. What does it, what does it mean to you? Like, what did you get out of this? All the way through college, I wanted to be on the debate team, the mock trial team. I wanted to be in, in Model UN. I went and found people who were on it. And I started asking some pretty personal questions about w- w- what was it? Go ahead. And, and, and one thing, Chris, and this is so important, this is so important for us to capitalize on, is the fact that Joe practices what he preaches and he puts that in place with all of the veterans that are transitioning out of the special forces. And he calls it one simple thing hey, go get 50 cups of coffee. And if you go to anyone in the tribe of THF and you go, hey, what's 50 cups of coffee? Every single, what are we yeah. up to, 750 people now? A thousand? Just we're about, getting close. yeah, just about. Getting Probably close. by the time this airs, we're at a thousand. Uh, every single one of those a thousand guys is gonna go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I did 53, or they're gonna know their number. Not only what it is, but they're gonna know their number. And right. that's so important. In the right. in the culture that he's really embodied in in uh, THF, so I love it. Hey, uh, real quick, uh, you have me at Model UN for the record. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, I was, yeah I'm huge. one of those one of those nerds. Yeah, uh, you're a nerd. Yep. You probably add a lot of street cred to us, Model UN young guys. Huge, huge, huge nerd. Um, so uh, thinking about that idea. Uh, coming into the Honor Foundation. Again, I didn't know that's what I was doing. I just was doing it because I felt like I didn't know enough to serve them yet. Mm. So I spent an entire year doing this so that when I launched the program in 2013, I could reflect back to those stories for some validation. This community is all about your stripes, right? Like how many deployments have you done? Like you don't see an E5 with no deployments talking to an E an E8 with seven combat deployments and telling him how to deploy. It doesn't work like that. Um, So I needed to go and talk to executives and understand the company. And I noticed this, this is the perfect segue into the trek. So as I was interviewing these executives across the Fortune 150, I would sit down with CEOs of monster companies, right? You'd walk into their office and there'd be the vision, you know, of the company on the wall. There'd be the mission statement on tabs of paper. There'd be uh, stated values plastered on beautiful paintings on the wall. And you're just kind of taken aback. It's like, wow. So this is what it's like. Okay, great. And I would go in there and the CEO, uh, depending on who he or she was would would always weave those things into the conversation and talk about how they fall back onto their value system. And, you know, everything, uh, I see, and I, I would walk out feeling, you know, with my you know, hat and they gave me in my little bag. I'm like, God, this place is unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. And or it's uh, not, or it's totally not. And really every example of those companies can be broken up into a 75, 25% split, meaning 75% were full of shit and 25% were not. And we're evangelists and what I call alignment up, down and all around. Like, Everything from the C-suite to the janitor was 100% aligned. You could ask anyone in that organization what they were doing and they would tell you. They would tell you they were working towards a mission of X, Y, and Z that we're all very inspired to be here. And and there's a certain energy that's palpable. Uh, And I knew that this is a community, after talking to enough of them, 
where they work really well off of broad objectives and then they'll figure the rest out. It's meaning, okay, I, I, you know, we're going to drop you off in this city in Iraq uh, and you just need to figure out who's who in the zoo. <laughs> Everybody get what you need to do. And then there's like a Roger that. And then they go off and they know what they need to do, which is incredible. Okay, that's a skill set that is totally translatable into the next adventure of their life, despite where they go. And when I learned that that's something that they were just, you know, trained to do, that tells me something about how sentient they must be, right? On how they must rely on things that normal average people walking around, they've never had, you know, the, the tissues inside their belly uh, honed in and trained to give them these types of types of senses. And it came from anecdote after anecdote after anecdote, but it was never actually quantified into a transition story of any kind. And so I thought, okay, the only way that, or one of the best ways for this community to learn about what's next for them is we should drop them into companies that have very different corporate cultures. Mm. And I, we would purposely find companies that were not aligned and find companies that were aligned and have them tour the company. And within minutes of entering organization, they're like, nope, not for me. And then all of a sudden you go into other organizations like I never thought ever that I would want to be a part of this company and what they do. But then I met the people and I could totally see myself being here. Yeah. So... It took something that was kind of jarring and very sentient for them to walk into a business and an organization and be like, I, I belong here. These are my people versus I do not belong here. These are not my people. And to give you an idea of, of the statistics that are floating around, again, that do not do veterans any favors, RAND Institution, for those of you who don't know RAND, uh, for those listening, RAND is a giant think tank. Uh, they produce studies after studies from government to policy to foreign policy, domestic policy. It's a huge think tank. Um, and they produced a study on veterans. And, and one of the biggest numbers that kind of rang throughout the fortune companies is that 80 percent of veterans leave their job in the first year. Well, why do you think that is? Like, I'm all about peeling the onion back. I'm not about, oh, oh, wow, 80 percent of veterans. Now all the hiring managers are saying, well, we're not going to hire veterans. Um, you know, you walk into an iPhone store and they say, hey, there's an 80% chance this phone won't work after a year. You're not going to buy the phone. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but nobody was willing to, to peel the onion back a bit. And so when I got on the phone with the folks at Rand and talked to some of the people who executed on the study, I'm like, why did they leave within a year? I'm confused. Like, they just up and left? Did anyone do any further interviews of the people that left the organizations and why they decided to leave. And they did some surface level questions, but they didn't do a lot. That wasn't the point they were trying to prove. Um, and so the information was incredibly biased. They left because it wasn't a culture fit. They left not because of what people think of, oh, immediately veterans have some sort of monopoly on PTSD, uh, could not be further from the truth. There are more average citizens walking around with un unproclaimed PTSD-like symptoms than veterans are, nearly five to one. So veterans right. do not, ha has nothing to do with PTS or PTSD. If anything, going into the wrong culture of an organization where people are underperformers, they don't do what they say, there's no real code of honor to the work that they're bringing 
to the day-to-day, that would cause me PTS symptoms, okay? Not knowing who to trust, not knowing who's gonna actually do what they say, coming from a community where they pride themselves knowing that the person to their right went through the exact same thing they did, the person to the left has gone through the exact same thing they did, and there's a real trust there inside that team. And to quote someone leaving the community, they said that he said his real fear was not about the job that he had to find. The real fear was the in-between part. I have to trust people that I don't know. And to me, that that's a great point for the overall blanket of the community is for once in my life, I have to trust someone who I can't call up a buddy over at team three and say, hey, this guy's coming over here. You know, what's the deal? Good guy. And then it goes into one direction of conversation or it goes into another direction of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and they don't have that. They don't have that lifeline going into a new organization. I would say, That's you crazy. know, Chris, uh, just for your edification and for those listening, um, this was really pivotal for me as I transitioned from the military and for my brothers as they transitioned from the military when we went on this trek and you could feel you could feel the difference of cultures. You could feel the difference of vibe, the environment in all of these organizations that we got to visit. Uh, and I've been on a couple of these and you can just feel it the second you walk in, just like Joe's talking about. And what's so amazing, and Joe will attest to this too, is is our, our community, the, the Navy SEALs community in specifics, we walk into any of these organizations. And Joe, how long would you think it takes a Navy SEAL to feel that culture? Minutes. <laughs> Minutes. Minutes. So my point is either it's a magnet, it's a magnet culture that we are drawn to like flies on poop or, you know, it's the exact opposite. It's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It is. That, that's good. Uh, nice shout out too to SEAL Team 3. Wasn't that your team, Kyle? Yeah. Um, just don't, um, uh, Joe, just to, you know, you talked a little bit about it. It seems obvious uh, in some ways, you know, bad organizations are just not where anybody would thrive. You know, I would think that uh, that would impact a lot of people, but certainly not the way you've described it. So that is definitely unique. And that's something that I've learned. Um, you know, not knowing who to trust, I think is something we all face from time to time. But I haven't necessarily been in situations where my life depended on it. And so moving and transitioning into a workforce still with that mindset is quite the, the challenge. Um, based off that, what are some examples you've seen where a, a terrible culture has negatively impact someone. You know why organizations are always saying we want to have a great culture. We got a good culture, and it can be everything from they put a ping pong table in the lunchroom to they actually care about uh, you know time off and people uh, and families and everything in between. Um, how does a negative culture? How have you seen it impact someone just in a very very bad way? And, and real quick, I think right now is a good transition point for us to transition and what you're doing with Fathom. Mm-hmm. Sure. So share with, uh, the, share with the listeners what you're doing there, because then they're going to hear it through that lens as well. That's right. So just a, a quick recap into, into Chris's question. Um, mm-hmm. 250 interviews where I heard almost the identical story. I just want to be part of a great team. I want to have a great leader. And I really want a wonderful culture over and over and over again. Moving into treks and meeting with CEOs and then meeting with people down into the organization and noticing that there was significant misalignment from what they are preaching at the top all the way to the bottom. 
And then I heard, uh, and then I visited companies that had the gold standard of a unique aspect that helps build into wonderful TLC. Uh, again, for the listeners, TLC, when I say it means teams, leadership, and culture. And when I went to go interview, so I left the Honor Foundation with this notion in my mind that really companies don't understand even themselves, just like some people aren't clear on who they are walking around. Uh, companies aren't clear who they are uh, walking around in the world either. And when I think of alignment and what that word means, the only reason why I'm so focused on alignment now, because I spent the majority of my younger life not aligned. I was misaligned. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to things that I knew would bring me joy and fulfillment and things that would uh, bring those around me joy and fulfillment. And it's what, after my interviews with the founders of 50 companies and the VCs, it's clear that every success story can be described as having excellent TLC. And then every failure in Silicon Valley and the world can be traced back to a failure in TLC. So wait a minute. You're telling me that that the the success to every company has one thing in common, and the failures of companies has one thing in common. Why why isn't there a fund that just focuses on that one thing? And that's what inspired the interviews to take place. Now, to answer your question, Chris, what what happens when you have a damaging culture? I mean, take your pick uh, from a from a Wells Fargo to an Uber. Um, here's what I know for a fact. And I do mean for a fact, I'm not speaking out of, out of place here. This is, this is a fact. And we're noticing this now as we begin to think about, you know, uh, growing a, a new world and, and we're having somewhat of a forced, uh, evolution. Um, it's like a revolution, but it's spelled with a capital E. Um, and we've seen this across every single industry from small business to fortune 100, I saw it. We're witnessing now in this crisis even more so disorganization, alarming attrition rates, signs of compromised leadership, misaligned cultures, unethical practices, um, you know, poor, poor frameworks of decision making. Like most companies aren't even sure how they make decisions. How crazy is that? Um, and these issues are, are in fact, you know, they are very quantifiable. And they're costing companies, sometimes what we're going to notice here, there's going to be a Darwinian layer uh, that happens over the next six months. We're going to see great companies thrive, and we're going to see anyone that fell into the category that I just outlined go away. We're going to see it in technology, and thank, not thankfully, but you know, we're going to see it happen in, across every industry uh, in, to include the nonprofit space. And if you are not, if you are not aligned with this work, um, it's causing people billions of dollars. Uh, and most importantly, it, it's catastrophic to the well-being of the founder, the CEO, the leadership teams, the employees, and then, of course, the world, right? Mm -hmm. The world. So that is a universal fact of what we're seeing right now. Um, and, you know, so to answer your, your, your question about, like, what's my individual example of people, uh, you know, from a poor culture, here it is. Uh, I've seen suicides. And I'm not talking about from the veteran side. I'm just talking about private sector side. I've seen suicides from poor cultures. I have seen uh, burnout to degrees of therapy 
where they have left. I have seen massive cases of depression. I see loneliness like I've never seen it before in the majority of corporate cultures that I touch. Um, and and the, 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 the best and worst part about this scenario is the only reason why I know what a poor culture feels like, not just from the hundreds of companies that I interacted with through uh, honor.org, but through the hundreds of companies that have aligned cultures from great leaders. And, and, and what I found throughout all this research and what I am actually scripting out into a book, because I don't know what else to do with all this. Uh, I, I don't know how else to organize it. Uh, other than there's, there's five forces. Everyone talks about, since 2000, we have seen a record number of studies, books, journals, publications on, on the theme of teams, on the theme of leadership, and on the theme of culture. Why is that? Why is that? It's like everyone's out in this desert and everyone is having the same outcry for water. That's why we have had a record number of publications around teams, leadership, and culture, because people are craving that. The SEAL community just kind of highlighted what they were looking for. And then I realized it was a trickle-down effect that they're not the only ones looking for this. The entire planet is looking for this. And every big company started off as what? Startup. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to spend my time, and I thought about consulting, I thought about building a great big, the next McKinsey, I thought about building all these things with this focus of TLC being the core. But if I'm really going to make a difference in the world, it should be at the beginning. It should be at the beginning of a company. Because when you get to Uber scenarios, you've already lost billions of dollars. You've lost billions You've lost tons in your reputational wealth um, from because all of those problems were totally fixable from the earliest stages. And that mindset shift has to happen. And so that's what what made me think about is, OK, we, there's a thirst and an, uh, there's an outcry and a thirst for teams, great teams, great leaders and a great culture. But again, no one's asking the question, like, what comes before that? Like great teams, great leadership and a great culture, they don't just show up. Innovation period. And there's a growth period and there's mistakes being made. So the SEAL teams were founded in 1964. It took 50, 60, 70 years, 1962. Uh, so 1962, so therefore, it's not like the great culture and like the warrior ethos, the SEAL ethos was written in 2003. So now, it works directly to what I'm about to explain, which is there are five forces that lead to great teams, leadership, and culture. Across all my interviews, across every interaction that I've had, and of course, everyone's going to like think to themselves, well, of course, right? Duh, like these are all obvious things. But bear with me through the explanation. Vision, mission, core values, guiding principle, and an ethos. And let's just stay on the SEAL community for a second. I, I've actually never talked this through from a SEAL community perspective. So the ethos... I'm all ears, buddy. Come on. He's on fire, people. So the ethos came, if my math, probably 60 years from the formation of the community. Now, I want everyone to think in their mind of an iceberg, okay? And at the top of that iceberg is someone planting a flag. That flag is the vision, Someone had the vision for the SEAL teams. They planted the flag 
And they, the whole point and how I describe vision, uh, pretty simple, right? Vision is the world we envision and hope to achieve together. Very simple. And when I talk about teams, leadership, and culture, they, you cannot go forth into any abyss, fight battles, enter into the infinite game of business, service, responsibility, blah, blah, without a crystal clear vision of the world they hope to create. And it's amazing how many leaders are not clear on the vision and the world they hope to create. So first of all, that is force number one. When I say force number one, it's above the surface, right? It's what the whole world can see of a business. Doesn't matter the size. Go one layer beneath that, right? Now we're like right at the surface where the bird kind of bobs a little bit, right? So it's sometimes it's above the surface a little bit and then it's below the surface a little bit. And, and the mission, okay, the why of any organization, I describe this again, very simply, the mission is why we get out of bed every morning. Very simple. And it's the damn truth. Um, and when I think of mission, uh, you know, in that definition, it's our purpose, our worthy cause, our belief. It must inspire. It's how we attract. Like, so now we're getting into what we attract into our business iceberg, right? What we attract into our life iceberg, how we attract, forge, and build strong teams, leadership, and culture. A mission's sole purpose is to attract the right people into your organization to support the vision architecture. Right. So you have this vision. A founder has a vision he puts out into the world. He attracts people by this mission, getting people attracted to the vision. May I'd like to, you know, ask you guys a funny question, a playful question. When people talk about, oh, that's a great business, tell me one business that doesn't have that doesn't have people involved. Can you guys not, not one business? Not one business no. in the world. So it's not about business product. It's about people, man. We hear it all the time. And in order to attract the right people to your organization, you have to have a crystal clear vision and a crystal clear mission. One of the greatest investors in the world who uh, has been a mentor of mine, uh, Forbes Midas touch list every year, year over year, past 10 years, amazing character. Uh, he says, we invest in crystal clear people. We invest in founders who are crystal clear. I can't, after one sitting, I can't explain their business better than them. It's over. Like it's, the founder needs to be clear. Um, so with every single force that I'm explaining, I've paired it with a gold standard that I have met personally, had the chance to learn about and, and read about and study. And so for vision, um, it's Elon Musk in my generation. We will not have another entrepreneur like Elon Musk in my generation, period, full stop, done. But here's what makes him uh, a visionary. And by the way, this force is the strongest out of the five for him and for SpaceX and for all of his companies. One. But, but here's what he realized. Have you ever heard the story about JFK and NASA? The one where uh, he walks in and, and he looks to the, little, to the guy and the guy's like, we're going to the moon. The janitor. Yeah, the janitor. So a quick, so a quick recap for the listeners. JFK, uh, you know, made a very bold request in his inauguration that we're going to the moon. Okay, we're going to be the first on the moon. People were like, what? Are you serious? Uh, considered it couldn't be done. Uh, human ingenuity, uh, of course, prevailed. And during one of his visits to NASA, he walks in with his entourage and a very kind of humble man was standing there with a mop and he was a janitor. Uh, and he kind of like tucked his head away and like, oh, my God, it's the president of the United States. I'm going to go over here. And the president like went towards him 
and said, you know, hey, you know, no, come here. I, I, nice to meet you. You know, I'm, I'm John. Like, yeah, okay. Like, mm-hmm. Mr. President. Um, and JFK turns to him and goes, so what do you do here? And without batting an eye and with a look of kind of like confusion, he goes, well, Mr. President, we're going to the moon. Just like that. <laughs> that is the most beautiful example of a crystal clear vision that has been aligned up, down, and all around an organization. Imagine us landing on the moon. I get emotional thinking about this. And that janitor is there with the flight controller, the you know the engineers, and they are all celebrating, hugging, not even knowing what, what the hell half the people even do in the room. <laughs> but man, they just achieved one of the greatest visions in human history. And that is what happens when you walk into SpaceX. What Elon Musk realized, which is what most entrepreneurs do not realize, not everyone is like them. He knows that not everyone is like a a visionary like me, okay? So what does he do? He takes the visions out of his head and all of SpaceX is plastered with imagery already on Mars. Mm. The communes are built. The, The Teslas are driving around with little spacemen inside of them. The underground tunnels are there in, in bright technicolor because he knows that for people to be aligned to something, they have to see it too. And the whole point of the SpaceX example and Elon Musk being the gold standard for vision for this guiding force is when we see T-shirts that are the SpaceX T-shirts, what do they say? We've all said it. No, I don't remember. What does it say? Occupy Mars. Ah, uh, <laughs> I've read his biography. Elon Musk is. I agree. It's a, he's a fascinating character. Um, you know that is uh, such a great story, Joe. I mean, that's just the the passion. I um I did an interview with a guy named Chris McChesney once, and he said, you know, uh, the leaders sometimes forget. They think they they have the mission, and then they tell the team, and then they go in their office, and two years later they come out and go, "What's going on?" And he's like, "Every ninety days, you got to reset the mission for everybody. You got to come out and say it over and over again." Um, and what Elon's figured out is what we know in marketing over and over again is that people don't buy a product, they buy an identity. You know, you've got to sell the identity that you're trying to achieve, you know, whether it's, you know, come to the Honor Foundation and we're gonna we're gonna put you on a path to greatness. Uh, or you come to work for us, we're gonna put you on a path to Mars. Um, I love it. You know, I think that um, setting the tone and mission, I love the way you said vision is planting the flag. This is who I am, this is why I'm here. Everybody watch out. That, I've never heard it quite articulated that way. That's fantastic. Um, and well, mission- it's, it's, well, just to remember, though, the vision, I, I'm, I'm so strict about the way that I talk about this, Chris. It, vision is the world we envision and hope to achieve together. And it, it's so much more than just, hey, um, you know, this is what I want people to see. Uh, this is what I want. This is what I want us to make a reality into the world together. And that last part is comma together, period. It's very important, like that it's separate, meaning meaning we have to do this. Name one great big thing that one person accomplished by themselves. Nothing. There's nothing. Well, I was just going to say that, but you interrupted me. Nothing. I know. I knew it. I knew it. No, I knew it. And I'm being I'm being playful, of course. But I here's the other thing, too, is I went down this very dark hole uh, black hole during the beginning of quarantine about logistics. And, uh, Noam Chomsky is the world's for number one. He's the most quoted person on the, on the planet. Manufacturing consent. He's, 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 he manufactured linguistics. He's the founder of linguistics. And, and 
he talks about the importance of words in ways that I've, it's, it's like poetry listening to him speak outside of the fact he's probably the smartest man uh, on the planet. Um, but thinking about uh, words and why they matter so much to me, because here's part of the getting through the, the five forces, you know, think of the iceberg going down, vision, mission. Now we're under the water, we're beneath the surface, we hit the core values. Now it starts to get interesting. And I, I was doing a, a, a talk for a, uh, for a Catholic organization, and I said to the, you know, to the audience in a very joking way, uh, who here knows the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> Everyone raises their hand. And then I said, okay. What's number seven? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Uh, and, and then I said, uh, who here has broken one of the Ten Commandments? And everyone again raised their hands. Well, why is that? That was the first core value set given to humanity. It doesn't matter what religion you are. But there they are. Those are the 10 core values of this faith right there. And guess what? They're up there so that we, they're verbs. They're all verbs, right? And we try to work towards those as the gold standard. We want to always honor thy mother and father. I do not do that on a daily basis. It's hard, right? It's hard. Um, so the, the, the real point of core values is not as whether or not they're being upheld, but if they're being worked towards constantly, incessantly. And, and that's why I define uh, uh, core values um, as our internal compass, meaning there are times where we may lose our way, right? There are times they guide how we think, act, feel, and communicate. Um, core values, they are distinct. They, they are what set us apart from everyone else. And here's another reason why words matter, Chris, and why I was playful in my correction, because if, if companies don't know what words resonate with their vision and their mission and their core values, how are they ever going to attract the right teams, leaders to create the right culture? Mm, that's good. That's good. They, they don't take the time to do that. They think it's an exercise. We'll do it in a, Hey, tomorrow we're going to take an jump hour. in there. Because yeah, I think so many, so many companies believe that they do this well. So many companies don't understand why it's important. So many companies just want to hire you to come in and sell this or do that. Um, and they want to have a great culture, but they really don't know. Why do so many people want a great culture and are so unable to do that? You know, I've always heard core values are defined as, hey, these are the non-negotiables that we've done since day one that make us different, make us special. And this is this is why we call them a core value. And I think that's essentially what you said also. But if that's so obvious, like getting on a budget is the fastest way to get out of debt kind of deal. Um, why are so many people bad at that? Mm. Can I, I'll be, I'll be frank and honest. Um, Please. Here's, here's the response. When I asked that question to 50 startup founders, here's the universal response I received. I don't have time. I don't have time. So like, we'll fix it along the way, right? Um, back to the SEAL ethos. Now it's funny because the fifth, okay, I don't wanna skip ahead, but the fifth driving force is ethos. And I'll tell you why it's the fifth and it's the base of the Berg and it's the bulk in it. And, and I'll, I'll get to that. But to your point on the core values, um, Leaders have to take the time to design a, a true moral filter for their organization, one that will guide decisions when they're not there, guide behaviors when they are not present, 
Uh, every day, again, core values toward the mission, forcing the vision architecture into reality. So now I'm painting this picture of like alignment up, down, and all around. If you don't, if the founder is not clear on the vision, the world they hope to, the world they hope to create together, if they're not clear on the the mission of why the why are these people going to get out of bed every morning to work for this vision, and then they don't take like how you put it uh, from the core value perspective, if they don't have this moral filter clearly outlined from the early days about why things came into reality, and I'll use the my personal value system, which was slowly brought into reality as a result of bringing more amazing staff into the Honor Foundation, um, like I, these were the reasons how the foundation came into existence. I needed people to help me bring it into words. I couldn't do it on my own. So our values are actually my personal values at the foundation and things that I try to work towards every single day um, with the you know number one value being be you. Like be you, you know how hard that is to to be yourself. Hey, can I stop there? Because I think that's a good point, uh, Joe. Sure. You know, I actually had a question on my list here. I was going to ask you. You know, a lot of people look at the culture of a company organization. And they think, well, that's for the CEO, that's for the board, that's for the owner, that's for the the department heads to figure out. What does the individual do? Um, you know, and, and the BU mentality, how does that impact them, and how can they change the environment based around that that piece of advice right there? Yeah. So this goes back to the five forces live inside us just as much as they do live inside a company. You two are walking around right now with the five forces inside you. You have a vision that you want to see the world come into. My personal vision is I envision a world where people feel psychologically safe and compensated doing work they love. That's my vision. That's the world I hope comes into reality because in my mind, work gives people purpose. Meaningful work gives people way more purpose. And if they feel psychologically safe and compensated for the work that they're doing, we're going to have a very nice picture on our hands. That's So everything I do in my life, everything, it must work towards that vision in some way. It's a very great, it's a great filter to have, right? So when people ask me to do stuff, I'm like, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't align with the world that I'm trying to bring into this world together. My mission is simple, to light fires so others may see. Notice I don't say so others can say, can see. I can't, I can't make people see anything, but I can light fires and, and get them thinking on what they may see. It's the same thing I did for THF. Again, I can go through my personal values into my individual guiding principles to an ethos that I'm, uh, you know, that I've been working on now for nearly six weeks. So it's the the, the point is you, you when a person goes to apply to a company, you are not doing yourself any favors by applying to a company that you are not aligned with. Because when you get there, you're not going to be a fit. And you can only fake it for so long. Like when people talk about work-life balance, I think it's such nonsense because if you are different at work than you are at home or different at home as you, as you are at work, you're lying in one of those two places. You are straight up lying mm -hmm. and there should be no difference. Like who I am here is who I am at dinner with friends, with family, with work. It doesn't matter. I'm the exact same person, whether you catch me off guard or not, because why? I'm aligned. I'm trying to work towards the same eight core values every single day, at least on a sliding scale to, to try to you know be on the right side of right every single day. I, I'm working towards the same mission every single day. I'm working towards the same vision every single day. To your, to your other point, like how does a founder scale 
right? Like when, when people need to grow organizations, the biggest drop in culture from my research happens between 50 and 150 people. Like when you go from that point into 150 people, something happens and it's early. And the second big drop in culture happens between 150 and 500. Uh, and there's all, I have this cool chart that I've done from research, from a research standpoint, um, when companies started to lose, uh, the, the, the initial vision, mission, core values the founders set out with, right? Uh, and it's a very quantifiable thing. And the, a great entrepreneur who I reached out to yesterday, and I'm going to be helping moving forward uh, because of the situation that's happening there, because I love and respect the company, is Airbnb. So Brian uh, and the founders there at Airbnb, Brian instituted something called the CNV interview. Uh, he knew this. He knew that I am so concerned about the vision and mission and values of this company losing itself, losing its way as we scale, that he created a whole department called CNV, Culture and Values Interview. All they did, first of all, Brian interviewed the first 1,800 employees himself against all of the will of all of his VCs, and he basically told them to pound sand. Um, and it turned out to be right. Yes, it wasn't the best use of his time towards the end. I mean, good Lord, that's a lot of people. Uh, but to him, it's what mattered most, because how are you supposed to build something on a weak foundation of people? Like, you can't. So that was the one thing he focused on. Then he trained a team to interview the way he would interview. And here is the culture we want to create. He made it crystal clear through words and deeds. And then he gave them the, the their, their, their principles, their guiding principles, which are their values. Um, uh, and they stuck to it. He had to let go of 1,900 people two days ago, 1,900. And he did it with the utmost class and leadership that I've ever seen. And it's the reason why Airbnb continues. He didn't, when he let everyone go, the entire HR team, he formed into a career placement team and guaranteed that everyone would have a job in the coming months because they're going to work with their teammates to find their next great adventure in life post Airbnb. He didn't call them former employees. He called them Airbnb alumni. Words matter. Wow. Words matter. Hey, can I jump in there? Because that's so, so good. Um, you know, I think what I hear you say all along is that you've been talking about tactics, but the tactics are all driving to the right people. Whether I need to find the right place to work or whether I need to create the right culture that people are attracted to and want to work, it all comes down to people. And so as a leader, as an individual, when you treat people around you poorly, uh, or you don't care enough about them, that leads to what I think we go all the way back to the very beginning. You said, hey, that leads to billions of dollars lost. That leads to people transitioning yep. into loneliness yep. and suicide. Um, yep. the, I mean, that's that's what it's coming down to is people, people, people. Yep. I've often said that it's just as impactful how someone leaves your company, whether you've helped them leave, uh, as it is for when they come into your company. Because everyone is watching how you got rid of someone. And if they don't feel safe and they're not sure what it takes to get fired or what it takes to get cut loose or when they're cut loose, they see all the gossip or humiliation that comes with that. You know, they don't feel good about the organization. And it's just as important how you let someone go as it is when you bring someone on. It's right. sort of a, a core belief that I have. And hearing that, I've always said, I don't understand when we let some people go, we don't say, hey, we know this is tough. 
We know that this didn't work out. We're going to give you a free resume writing service. We're going to provide. We're going to provide you with some job training, interviewing skills, so that you can be better prepared for your next challenge in life. And so, if people had that at their disposal when they know they left, they probably would work a lot harder. They'd be a lot more comfortable in their role there. They wouldn't be as nervous. They'd be more approachable to their leaders. Mm-hmm. And and I think mm-hmm. that's what Airbnb is doing. Man, I love that Airbnb that's alumni. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, they they did an amazing job. And again, when I think about alignment and when I hear, you know, one of the things that I listen for when I'm speaking to entrepreneurs is how well do I think this person treats themselves? Because how, how, you know, when we, when you don't treat yourself like you matter, you will not treat other people like they matter either. And to me, that is one of the things that I'm trying to fine tune my ear for. It's like, um, we've never seen this skyrocket loneliness, skyrocket depression, skyrocket anxiety inside of, inside of the founder community. And it's because they have to build businesses faster, bigger, stronger, more now, 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 more money, more product, more scale, more this. And it's constant and it does not stop. Um, but there's not a single person in their life which is why I don't ask for board seats. I don't want to be on a board. I don't want to be on your board. I'm not worried about control and command. I'm worried about being the person you call before the board meeting and after the board meeting. Mm-hmm. I want to do yeah. I want to I want to do the checkup from the Ooh. neck up, man. I'm I'm oh. here to I'm I'm here to do that. So how have you, how have you been implementing that then, Joe? Like how are you so you don't want a board seat, but then how are you becoming that guy that they do call? Deeds and words, man. Like I don't need to be on a board to assert my opinion. I don't. I don't need to be on a board to worry about my ownership and my control. Because my true worry about my ownership in a company is the mental well-being and health of the founder. Mm. So you guys can, and, and not that there aren't wonderful board. I'm not saying that. I'm not no, saying there's not one. We get you. Board members, right? Yeah. Uh, that take care of their founders. Um, I just want to know going in. So there's an interesting. Huh. There's Deeds an interesting and words. Deeds and words. Deeds and there's words. There, and not not trying to be an authority without having. So one of the values, uh, I don't want to be an authority without having swept the floor. Let's put it that way. And this is what I mean by that. One of the values which we haven't announced yet. Our website will be launching next year, which will be the largest repository of um, of materials, content regarding teams, leadership, and culture in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it will have nothing to do with our company and it'll be everything. It'll have everything to do with supporting our entrepreneurs, looking at the world through our lens of TLC. So the, the one thing, um, uh, that I was, Oh shoot. What was I, I was just going to say something and that took Deeds me. Words. Uh, These are no, words no. starting at the beginning. You want to sweep the floor. Oh, so you sweep the floor. Thank you. So the, one of the things, one of our values, we have four. One of the values that I will talk about is called, uh, it's just sweep, period. Because there's a lot of talented people in the world, tons, especially up in Silicon Valley. There's not a lot of talented people who are willing to sweep the floor. And when I think of that image, when I think of what it takes to literally, quite literally, get to an office in the beginning of the day, pick up a broom and start sweeping and cleaning for your teammates, And at the end of the day, being the last person there, being willing to pick up the broom again and sweep up 
the office for your teammates without asking or being told to, or, you know, Hey, it's clean in here. Who did that? And not, not being to raise your hand, like literally willing to sweep. And then you translate that and up and down the business. I want a culture of people who are willing to sweep the floor. And that is very hard to find. Um, all of our values are so common sense and yet they are not done often. Another value is do what we say. Like it's that simple. We will do what we say. We say what we do. Uh, we do what we say, excuse me. Uh, so again, long time developing the narrative and the story behind each one of our values. But we hear this all the time. We just don't see it all the time. We hear about great teams, leadership, and culture all the time. We don't see it all the time. So why is that? It's because people are talking about an end state, an outcome, and not about how to actually get there. Guiding principles is... Again, beneath the iceberg that leads into your ethos. Uh, and I talk about guiding principles. It's, it's what we do without saying anything at all. Those are the founding behaviors that give you a tactical response to something. So like, you know, how would the founder solve this problem at employee 2600? Oh, well, wait a minute. We have all these guiding principles that, that were put in place by the founder and the founding team. How do you know, it's literally, what do I do in this moment? It's a very tactical response to something. And guiding principles, um, you know, they become kind of the written truths, the underlying assumptions behind uh, the actions of the true believers of the, of the core values, the mission, and the vision. And if those are stated somewhere, it's more than just a corporate workbook, man. Like, for instance, a, a, a guiding principle for me is, uh, a con you know, a relationship will not change without contact. And then there's a narrative behind that, meaning I, you can't expect a relationship to change anywhere in the organization unless you go make contact, unless you go talk to them, unless you call them, unless you send them a note, unless you do something that is with kindness, uh, that is random. Uh, so anyways, to the SEAL analogy of ethos, it took them nearly 60 years, 70 years to create an ethos. Why? Because it took them 60 years to formulate the vision, to solidify the mission, to understand their own core values, to decide what their guiding principles were. And now they're like, who are we? When you talk about the word legacy, that's exactly what ethos does. It's the unspoken moral nature of a person, community, or culture. It's what leaves legacy. Legacy isn't created, legacy is left. And when I think about, when I think about the ethos, I'll challenge everyone who listens to this. I want you to look up the Spartan ethos. Because that took about a thousand years to create. I want you to look up the SEAL ethos that took about you know half a century to create. And you tell me, and this is what came why I realized that what was missing from companies was was the ethos. How many times have you gone to an about us page of a company and walked away knowing nothing about them? <laughs> but it was but it's supposed to be the about us page, right? Like why I'm supposed to know about you now, right? Go to the SEAL ethos. And tell me, you now don't understand the uncommon breed of warrior that comes into the SEAL community from reading that ethos. That comes from decades of understanding who they are and what they do and how they do it. That's good fun stuff. Fact, fun fact, yeah. Chris. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you this. Uh, my good, good buddy, uh, Derek Van Orden, he's running for the third district of uh, Congress in Wisconsin. He actually was there when they wrote the, the uh, SEAL ethos. Yeah. He was one of the guys they flew out onto the island. Uh, all in cell was the guy who started leading the charge in our community. And I think it was like around 2000. 
three, I want to say, yep. four, somewhere in there. Yep. And they all yep. flew out and um, and rode it. They all okay. essentially a bunch of seals, senior seals, got on a plane, flew to a deserted island, spent a couple of days there, and they didn't leave the deserted island till the Celiothos was done. Pretty cool. That's right. Yep. That's cool. Um, we should do a whole podcast on the steel ethos. That sounds great. Um, I love it. You know, uh, Joe, as I hear your talk, you keep talking about words that matter. The ethos is obviously full of words that matter. It reminds me of just uh, a couple of things that came to mind. I remember when we used to say we're going to drill for oil um, and they changed it to exploring for energy. Uh, when they used to talk about global warming. Um, and now they call it climate change. Climate change. Yeah. And so I actually have an example in my life. When I took over a team, uh, we used to have these uh, people, we did events, and uh, they were called event or event coordinators. And they had such a negative connotation. Other departments in the company had started to hire their own people to do their events because they didn't want to use the team that I was sort of handed. It was such a miserable kind of uh, team to work with. And so I came in and I instantly changed the culture by stopping calling them event coordinators and called them event producers and everyone got on board. I mean, it was wild. I mean, I yeah. wish I could tell you that I saw it coming, um, but I didn't. Uh, but certainly just changing the negatively kind of uh, associated word with coordinator to producer, it, it, it manifested into great things. Um, mm. Words do matter and how you say them matters and how you, uh, you approach someone to discuss things matter um, mm. because we're all sort of human. We all have our preconceived uh, emotions and ideas and things that come to it. And so I appreciate it. We are running late on time, man, and this has been great. I feel like you've preached at so us. For t it's been almost the Jill Musselman podcast. Uh, <laughs> our pod. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, get so, I get so fired up talking about this. So It's um, such a good topic, no, huh, Joe. We love it. We love it. I oh, wrote, it's the best. I've got three pages of notes that I've jotted down. Great. It's been so good. Great, great. Um, one last question. How can can Kyle and I and our listeners help you uh, with what you're doing? Or uh, let me ask another question. How? What is the best way to help uh, considering all the things you're associated with? Um, the best way to help what I am working very hard towards is for you. Don't work for me. Work for yourself. Don't look to support me. Support yourself. I would challenge you to take an hour a day for a month and just dig into you. I don't think we spend enough time doing that to better understand ourselves. We are the vehicles. If you hope to impact other people around the world, you're the vehicle that's going to bring the impact. How well do you know you? Take time to get to know yourself and so much will begin to change in your life. So that is the one thing I would say. I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not, you know, yes, I'd love for people to, you know, get involved with my work in some way. Um, but truly, I mean this. I'd rather you spend time, any available time, working on yourself. That's beautiful. That is, that's selfless. And I would uh, expect nothing else from you over the last hour than to give that answer right there. Uh, let me wrap up with this one last question. Sure. What's one thing that Kyle and I didn't ask you? that we probably should have asked you? You know, here's the question that I think most of us would have an emotional reaction to. If someone were to come up to me 10 years ago and ask me this question, I might've been kind of chest, chest puffery, chest puffy and uh, kind of a look on my face, almost like it was an insult, which is who do you think you are? 
10 years ago, someone asked me that question, I would probably take it the wrong way because I didn't know who I was. If someone were to ask me that question today, so Joe, who do you think you are? I'd be like, oh man, I wouldn't get mad. I'd be like, oh man, that's a deep question. You know, I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm on this path. I'm, I, I could tell you who I think I might be. I, I think I'm ignorant to who I am right now. And I'm most certainly ignorant to who I think I might become, but, uh, I don't know. Uh, and so the, the, the question is that I typically ask myself that my wife can tell that I found something out new. She'll see a look on my face and she'll go, uh, did you find something else about yourself, uh, again today? Like, is that why you looked, I said, yeah, I did. And I'm just not happy about it. Uh, so I do think that if, if there were a question that you would ask me, it says, you know, like, who, who do you think you are? Um, which is a pretty serious question in my book. Um, I would say, I don't know, but at least now I'm on the path to understand. We spend so much of our lives in the dark about who we are. You know, humans are 85% more likely to give a full medical prescription to their dog than they are themselves. So like, I, I, we, we just don't care about ourselves. This is why models like Airbnb and Uber work because we, it's a, it's not a gig economy. It's, it's not a sharing economy. It's a trust economy. Like everything to do with those two models of business have to do with trust period. You're letting strangers stay in your house. You're letting strangers get into your car where 50 years ago, that would have been insane, insane. Yet now we are at an all time high of trust. The world is filled with far more great people uh, than, than the opposite and alternative. So I would say that, you know, you're born, we have never been born into a time that I think is better for humanity uh, than right now, uh, despite what we see on the TV, which they are paid to e exploit the extremes, um, shut that off and then turn on a light and start to look at who you are and the path that you hope to create for yourself while being yourself biggest challenge you could take on in your life. Wow. I love that. Um, man, Bravo. I'm guilty as charged. Jeez. Um, that was a good way to end it. I don't want to go any, you I don't know, want to go past that. Uh, friends I've known Joe for uh, quite some time, several, uh, probably half a, half a decade now. And, yeah. uh, I, I used to call you an amateur philosopher. <laughs> no longer my friend, no longer. No, man. No long, long way to go. Bro, thank you um, so much for that. being here thank with you. us today, man. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this. This has been fascinating. And Joe, thank you very much for being yeah, here. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's been um, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you both. And thanks. Appreciate you too. Thanks, everyone. Wow, Kyle, what a podcast. He had so great. much information. I took three nuggets. pages of notes. <laughs> I did too. I got nuggets. Nuggets I mean, upon nuggets. Thank geez. you, Joe. So good. Five forces, plant your flag. Uh, most people need a place to feel useful, uh, but they also need to feel vulnerable and safe. Uh, just so much good stuff. Look, we hope you enjoyed this. If you did, please give us five stars, leave a review. Uh, even, if it's to tell us, even if it's to tell us that we're not speaking clearly, who knows? Just tell us you like it and share it, please. Uh, please support Joe and his Honor Foundation. He wouldn't say it, but we will. Uh, we want you to listen to the next podcast as well. We've got so many great guests lined up. We've got Rob Newsom. He's a former SEAL. A vice president currently of strategy for the Philadelphia 76ers. We're really excited to talk to him. We got Larry McIntosh coming up. He's a former chief branding officer for Pepsi. He's the one who made the Pepsi can blue. 
he hired Cindy Crawford, and he was there when Michael Jackson caught his hair on fire, if you remember that. Um, and finally, we also got Jeff Campbell coming up on the show. He's the former global CEO for Burger King, and he's going to share exactly how he created a franchise full of people who love working there. And so I'm excited what we got coming up. Yes. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you, Kyle. Thanks for coming along with us today. Have a great day. And we're in San Diego. So, uh, of course, we're going to say, hey, keep it classy. Stay classy, San Diego. Stay classy. Take care. I've been on my own. Trying to, trying to, trying to find my way home. 